The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Please be seated. So this morning we continue our discussion, meditations in the Gospel of John. I've selected for our meditation this morning, chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. You open your Bibles, I'll read from there. I'm reading the NIV, the old NIV version. Um, This is God's very word. Please give careful attention to it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. It is broader than all the heavens. Lord, uh, we give you thanks for it. We ask that you would grant once again this morning that reverence and humility before your word, without which no one can understand truth, especially your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the vine, John 15. Mi amar le mi umatai. Mi amar le mi umatai. Roughly translated is who said unto whom and when. This is a standard question for Israeli children on Bible tests and a common lead-in for jokes in the country of Israel. More importantly for our purposes this morning, it is a segue into the art and science of illusion hunting. There is wide consensus among literary critics that Milton was a precursor to Wordsworth as Shakespeare was to Keats. These literary giants influence subsequent poets. Does the same kind of literary dynamic happen among biblical authors? In other words, influence. And if so, how? Unfortunately, biblical scholars, ministers, and pastors have not always been very good at discerning the art of illusion. I can remember when I was a student here, my special interest in the Gospel of John was piqued by one of our former library directors, who now lives in the Pacific Northwest. Therefore, it is very sad to me that lately the imagery and typology conveyed here in this gospel at this point has come under a protracted and caricatured attack from the East Coast to the Midwest and even to the West Coast, including the Pacific Northwest. That is, the idea that Israel represents a corporate typological atom is allegedly a false and misleading notion. 
Specifically, the concept has been called into question whether, and I quote, the elevation of Israel to the status of being a corporate Adam who undergoes a covenant of works probation, analogous to the first and last Adam, close quote, is really a valid biblical category that Christ as a true son of Israel fulfills. I do not have time this morning to trace this imagery all the way back to the Garden of Eden. However, I commend to you the fine study on a cognitive approach to metaphor by Job Jindo, recently published in the Harvard Semitic Monograph series, which may be found in our library and indeed exquisitely shows how pervasive this notion is in the Hebrew Bible, the one just critiqued and evaluated, especially in the book of Jeremiah. Nevertheless, I do want to admit that these critics have raised some very important questions, and for this we can be somewhat thankful. Their criticism is seismic, if nevertheless misguided. The relationship of Israel to Adam and the garden, and in turn to Christ and his mission, that touches on many aspects of biblical hermeneutics. For example, the naughty problem of corporate Israel is brought into play. The relationship between the Testaments also rises to the surface and many other topics as well. But most importantly raised is the umbilical connection between biblical typology to the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. And therefore, this recent attack on a fundamental biblical category entails significant impact on Christian teaching and preaching. My thesis is this. The issue at stake here is how biblical metaphor works. More particularly according to the latest theorists on metaphor among cognitive linguists and psychologists, how is a reader or hearer's mind being semantically primed by Jesus' metaphor activation here in John 15? Or to put it another way, what degree of activation psychologically is taking place in the minds of hearers here and what should be activated in our own minds when we read such a passage. It is my thesis this morning that in this pronouncement that Jesus makes, I am the true vine, our Lord, through the use of this particular metaphor, actually transfers, as one author has said, and I quote, the privileges and responsibilities from the Hebrew people to himself. Actually transfers the privileges and responsibilities from the Hebrew people to himself. Now, if this is the case, a condition that I do not think is contrary to fact, then this recent attack mentioned above on the nature and purpose of biblical metaphor and therefore on the nature and function of biblical typology must be mistaken and it must become short-lived. It may not come as a surprise to you that I am of the opinion that the foundational criticism of this attack is on the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Therefore, in order to understand the imagery that is coming into play here in John, we need to turn to the 77% of the Christian Bible on which John depended, namely the Hebrew Bible. First point, the importance of allusion to our view of hermeneutics and typology. For Richard Lyon Morgan, whose thesis on the fulfillment in the fourth gospel, which I recently read, the Old Testament background to the gospel of John, is not a mechanical one, as if one could just count up the number of occurrences in which the Old Testament is cited in that gospel. Rather, it is, as Morgan says, the Old Testament, and I quote, is an entire framework of thought out of which the author wrote and from which the gospel takes its meaning, close quote. 
This brings to my mind how many, so many mistakes in biblical hermeneutics occur when the shaping pattern of the Old Testament scriptures is marginalized, reduced, or even forgotten. Therefore, one of the very great needs today is to recover the ark of New Testament exegesis from its wanderings in the land of the Philistines. It needs to be led back, as E.C. Hoskins declares, to, quote, to its home in the midst of the classical Old Testament scriptures, close quote. My second point is the gospel writer, that is John, located the foundation of his Messiah in the history of Israel itself. John, in this location and elsewhere, located the foundation of his Messiah in the history of Israel itself. Why is this the case? Because in the Old Testament, the vine is frequently used as a symbol for Israel herself. Not only is this the case in the psalm from which we sung this morning, it is also the case in Deuteronomy 32. It is the case in Jeremiah 2.21 and following, especially. It is the case in Hosea 10. It is the case in Ezekiel 19 and many other passages as well. However, most significant is the elusive tissue that connects our passage with the vineyard songs of Isaiah. And I have in mind here Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27. Isaiah 5 is a classic lawsuit passage in which the prophet, coming as he does as a covenant lawyer on behalf of the Lord, indicts Israel as a vineyard that can only bring forth bad grapes, even though the Lord had done everything on her behalf that she might issue in good grapes. In a poetic verse that sings with beauty and truth, the prophet declares the following. If you can't hear that, assonance, you have a tin ear. As Joe Dindo has stated, and I quote, this is one of the prime examples of Isaiah's masterful skill at wordplay. Here he diametrically uh, uses opposing concepts as contrasted through remarkable assonances. Justice, mishpat, versus bloodshed or annexation, mispach. Equity, zadakah, versus outcry, zadakah. To wit, the vineyard that God expected to be a garden of justice and righteousness has degenerated into a garden of bloodshed or annexation and outcry, close quote. Thankfully, the vineyard song in Isaiah 27 is not as dark, foreboding, and invective as the vineyard song in Isaiah 5. It rather sings with notes meant to resound with the truths of the new covenant. For what Israel could not do, since she had failed, God will initiate and accomplish. Israel will become fruitful again. Thirdly, our Lord, through the image of the vine in John 15, transfers these privileges and responsibilities of the Hebrew people to himself. Our Lord, through the image of the vine in John 15, transfers these privileges and responsibilities to the Hebrew people, from the Hebrew people, to himself. Therefore, when Jesus declares, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And later in the verses, in this same chapter, which we read from, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. 
What is he doing? Essentially this. And I read a long quote, though I don't like to do that, nevertheless, I can't beat its eloquence. Jesus recapitulates the history of Israel and fulfills her destiny in the events of his life. With this foundation, Psalm 80 and other Old Testament passages, our Lord announces that he is the true vine. All that God had tried to do in Israel's history and failed to accomplish because of the nation's rejection of his love, he now has accomplished in his son, the true Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purpose from the beginning. He is the source of life for Israel. The nation, Israel, had become a degenerate plant, bringing forth wild grapes, yet there is a true vine of which the Father himself has been the husbandman. The life of the vine, which had ever proceeded from the Father, was the very life incarnate in Jesus. I am the vine, the true. In this great word, our Lord transferred the privileges and responsibilities from the Hebrew people to himself, and thus associated with himself. For in the fifth verse, he repeats the figure and indicates the relationship of all men of faith to him. I am the vine, ye are the branches. This is not to imply that Christ is the main stem and the disciples are the branches. He said, I am the vine. And the vine is not only the main stem. Christ is all. Root, main stem, branches, leaves, tendrils, fruit. His disciples are the branches, that is, parts of him, the vine. Close quote. Therefore, I maintain in order to read John 5 responsibly, one needs to understand the cognitive environment of the original auditors, hearers of the Hebrew Bible. This would include not only those that heard the testament of Jacob, for example, Genesis 49, that mother prophecy about the binding of his donkey to a vine, a choice vine, in fact, but also the other passages from the Old Testament that I have just mentioned that frequently and regularly use the vine metaphor as a symbol for Israel herself. Jesus, therefore, is the true vine. What are we to conclude from all this too, too brief meditation this morning with regards to Christ declaring that he is the true vine? First, I have suggested that our Lord is invoking Old Testament imagery unless we return our Lord's allusion to his proper moorings, that is to say, classical Old Testament scriptures which generate the elusive intertextual tissue here. We will only succeed in a very thin description of the text from John 15. Secondly, these allusions are drawn from Hosea, Jeremiah, possibly even Deuteronomy 32, but especially Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27. Third, there we saw that the vine is invoked as a symbol for Israel. Fourth, therefore when our Lord utilizes this image, the original audience's mind and our mind as well should be primed and activated to think of Israel as a nation which nation should have produced, brought forward, and shown the fruit of obedience. Fifth, corporate Israel, sons of Adam, failed to produce such good fruit. Sixth, our Lord, a true son of Adam, and yet without sin, and a true son of Israel, has prevailed and succeeded in every manner and way and is now producing a harvest magnificent to behold. He has provided the necessary positive righteousness to win the approbation of the husbandman, namely the father, 
And having transferred the responsibilities and privileges of the Hebrew people to himself, communicated here through this rich literary texture of the vine metaphor, his elect are being grafted into him, the true vine, elect from every nation, from every tongue, and from every tribe. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us not shirk our responsibilities to showcase Christ in all his glory from these Old Testament and New Testament passages that invoke the people of Israel, their privileges and responsibilities, and let us demonstrate how Christ has done what they, that is Israel, failed to do. If these recent critics and gainsayers wish to persist in maligning God's historically designed typology in the scriptures, then the church's own teachers and ministers, especially the doctors of the church, will be left with no recourse but to silence them as our Book of Church Order directs us to do in our solemn duty. Meanwhile, let us affirm that in Christ, the true vine, all Old Testament metaphors leading to Christological symbols find their yes and amen in him as their perfect antitype, the Israel of God. Amen. You are dismissed. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.